Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 281, England. Now, as always, this show is free and independent, and it continues to be so only through member support. And you can help keep the lights on and keep history going by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Lakshana, Tamazin, and Kate for signing up already. The last couple episodes have focused on the political tools that Athelstan had at his disposal. And marriage alliances, fostering, dynastic cults, and diplomatic entreaties were all powerful pieces moving on a huge Dark Age chessboard. And what I want you to realize about these things is first, they took a lot of time to do. They didn't take place instantly, but a strategic mind, a mind like Athelstan's, would have been able to see the long game and set his moves accordingly, knowing that they wouldn't fully materialize for years to come. And the second thing I'd like you to know is that these tools were highly cultural. There's nothing inherently political about a marriage or fostering a child. At least, it's not political until people make it so. So by examining the tools that political actors wield, we learn something important about the culture and society that underlies it. It tells us about their values and how they prioritize people and things. And all of these slow, important tools were working constantly in the background throughout Athelstan's reign. But on top of the political tools, we also have political events. Things that happen and shake things up. And when it comes to the reign of Athelstan, there was nothing slow about the political events marking his reign. When Athelstan came into the throne of Wessex, he faced a cabal of resistance. And right at the center of this resistance was actually the center of Wessex itself, Winchester. In particular, the Bishop of Winchester turned out to be one of Athelstan's prime adversaries. The bishop was so opposed to Athelstan's rule that he wouldn't even attend the coronation. Now, symbolically and culturally, this snub can't be overstated. Winchester was the ancestral seat of power for Wessex, and for generations, every West Saxon king had derived their authority from their association with the city. And now, one of the most powerful figures in that city was lining up against him. So what do you do when you're new on the job and your more senior co-worker refuses to play ball? You go over their head. And luckily for Athelstan, the Bishop of Winchester did actually have a boss, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so it should come as no surprise that probably before the leftovers of the coronation feast had even made their way to Athelstan's lunch, the new king was recorded granting lands to the archbishopric. He gave them Thanet. Now, by making this move and making it so quickly, Athelstan was showing respect and good manners because he was tangibly thanking the See of Canterbury for being involved in his coronation and for allowing him to use their gospels during the ceremony. And using those gospels was actually a pretty big deal. It added weight to his assertion that he had the divine right to rule. But this land grant also had a secondary benefit. Athelstan was establishing that, unlike his father and grandfather, his reign would be marked by generosity to the church. He was providing the See of Canterbury an example of what it would get out of a friendship with the crown. And I'm guessing that, in response, Athelstan was also hoping that the archbishop would wish to show some appreciation and place a check on Athelstan's enemy, the Bishop of Winchester. So we can see him moving pretty quick to deal with this enemy, but... 
while this enemy in the church was a problem and it was a serious and immediate threat to his crown, Athelstan also found himself staring down the barrel of a threat to his entire kingdom. And to understand what happens next, you need to remember that Northumbria had been a problem for the House of Wessex throughout a significant portion of their history. The kingdom was a thorn in the side of Alfred, always popping up to support his enemies at the most inopportune times. Similarly, they presented a significant challenge for Edward and Athelflaed, and it wasn't until the Northumbrian army was devastated at Tenton Hall that, at long last, Edward had a chance to breathe. However, Northumbria fully collapsed shortly after that loss, and that power vacuum gave the Viking warlord Ragnald all the space that he needed to defeat Elderman Adred of Bamborough and his Scottish allies, and then take over Northumbria and rebrand it to the kingdom of Jorvik. Meanwhile, at about the same time, Ragnald's cousin, Citric, was also looking for a title bump. And so he led a war fleet, and he killed the High King of Ireland, Nial, and he took possession of Dublin, becoming King Citric of Dublin. But the thing is, that Citric was a Vikinger down to his bones. And so he continued raiding. And he even raided Mercia, which was Edward's territory. And that was a problem, but it gave Edward all the reason that he needed to intervene into Northumbria. I mean, think about it. Ildred of Bamborough was a family friend of Edward's, and he'd been at war with Ragnald. And meanwhile, Ragnald's cousin, Citric, was launching raids into Edward's lands. This had war written all over it. And in response, Edward made a peace treaty. He would recognize Ragnald as the king of Jorvik. And all Ragnald had to do is give Edward his fealty. And that gives you a sense of what sort of threat these northerners posed. Because Edward must have really wanted peace out of this deal. But regardless of how much he wanted it, within a year of Edward humbling himself to sign a peace treaty recognizing Jorvik and King Ragnald, this new King Ragnald died of unknown causes. And so, King Citric of Dublin... A Vikinger with a history of raiding Anglo-Saxon lands and killing powerful monarchs left Dublin in the hands of his cousin, a man named Guthrith, and sailed across the Irish Sea to claim the throne of Jorvik. And unlike King Ragnald, this new King Citric of Jorvik showed no desire to establish any sort of agreement with King Edward, and this frosty relationship lasted the rest of Edward's life. So that's a quick rundown of the recent history of Northumbria. But here's what you need to know. Northumbria, which had newly been reminted as the kingdom of Jorvik, was a significant threat. They were so dangerous that the House of Wessex had spent generations trying to contain the threat that they posed. And by the time that Athelstan took the throne of Wessex, King Citric, who was a particularly dangerous ruler in a land known for dangerous rulers, had been reigning in Jorvik for about four years. But within six months of King Athelstan taking the throne, he met with King Citric of Jorvik in his hometown of Tamworth. And on January 30th, 926, Citric married Athelstan's only full-blooded sister. Now, we don't know much about her, only that her name might have been Edith. But her marriage was one of the most unlikely events of the era, because it marks a diplomatic achievement between Wessex and Northumbria that seemed almost impossible. Even getting Citric to the table, especially when that table was located in the Mercian capital of Tamworth, was no small feat. 
And we're not told how Athelstan pulled this off. But what we know is that it happened only six months after Athelstan took the throne. So whatever talks and maneuvering that was needed to arrange this marriage must have happened fast. I mean, maybe they even started before Mercia declared Athelstan king over his own half-brother. We don't know. But this was a really big deal. And this marriage wasn't just a marriage. It was a political marriage. They were establishing an alliance. And it actually went a bit beyond that as well. Because within this agreement was the promise that King Citric would convert to Christianity. So now, the regicidal raiding Vikinger turned King of Dublin turned King of Jorvik. A king that was sitting right on the edge of his border and had the potential to cause all manner of chaos for Athelstan's kingdom was officially an in-law and was even part of Christendom. That is an astounding achievement. And at the same time that this was happening, Athelstan was also taking in all those noble foster children, marrying his half-sisters to figures like Hugh the Great of the Franks, and obtaining relics for his kingdom. Athelstan was still in the earliest part of his reign, and he was likely still getting used to sitting on the throne. But looking at his accomplishments, you wouldn't know it. In just the space of a year, a man of uncertain birth and even less certain claim to succession had made himself a friend on the throne of Jorvik, another ruling in Francia, and even had a friend in Canterbury who had a hotline to heaven, and more importantly, was the boss of one of his chief critics. What we're seeing here is a tectonic shift in the balance of power on the island. And not just because Athelstan had neutralized a potential threat to the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, but also because the new king quickly obtained significant safeguards to his reign by linking his rule to large and powerful kingdoms that he could turn to for support if everything went tits up. The pieces were set on the board. But in doing this, Athelstan had also created a significant problem, because it turned out that not everyone in Jorvik was pleased with King Citric's conversion. I mean, if you wanted to visit Tamworth and marry this Anglo-Saxon, fine. But to convert to their god? Well, that was a bit much. Especially since when a king converts, his followers are typically expected to follow suit. And it seems that some of Citric's followers weren't all that eager to exchange the sign of Freyr, a sign that I think we can all agree is rather festive, and replace it with a literal torture device. So what I'm saying here is that the competition was stiff, and it looks like for some of the people of Jorvik, convincing them to abandon their gods was a hard sell. And Citric might have underestimated their fervor, because he was caught flat-footed when Jorvik started to rebel. A growing movement against his rule appears to have kicked up. And it must have been significant because this was a warrior king, a victorious king. But it took less than a year for Citric to renounce his vows and return to the old ways, openly following the gods of his ancestors. And we don't know what Edith thought of this. I mean, converting to Christianity was kind of part of the deal. And now she was stuck in an unfamiliar land with an older husband from a foreign and hostile culture, and he's even abandoned his oaths and the faith that bound them. We aren't told anything about her, and she seems to have been a political pawn here. But I have to imagine that her husband's apostasy was likely the final indignity on top of a whole host of indignities. But her thoughts aren't recorded. However, 
we do know that William of Malmesbury and several other writers were absolutely appalled. Apostasy was a big deal back then. I mean, it still is today, to be honest. Just try switching political parties or even football teams and see what happens. And the thing about switching sides repeatedly, which is what Citric did, especially switching sides under pressure, is that it doesn't really solve the issues that you're facing. After all, if you have a bunch of people who are so angry at you that they're talking about regime change, do you really think they're going to be soothed by a casual switch of religion? Furthermore, what about the followers of the religion that you just spurned? How do you think they're going to react to this change? King Citric was in trouble, and that meant that King Athelstan was in trouble. His northern border relied on a good relationship with Jorvik, and Citric just broke his promise and betrayed God. No matter which way this shook out, his reign was looking shaky, which meant that this alliance was looking shaky. And what would all of this mean for Athelstan's only full-blooded sister? After all, she was stuck up there living with an apostate surrounded by angry pagan nobles. For Athelstan, things were shaping up to be one of the worst sophomore slumps in history. And then, the situation went from bad to worse, because King Citric died. And if you think the timing of that death is suspect, and that there might have been some sort of foul play, I agree. The Annals of Ulster tell us that Citric died before his time, which implies a shady death. And some scholars theorize that this death was violent. Now, we aren't told who, if anyone, was responsible for Citric's death. But given the events immediately leading up to his death, it looks like it might have been part of a concerted effort against his rule. And Citric's cozy relationship with the House of Athelstan probably didn't help his case. And if you're getting a nasty case of deja vu, you're not alone. Because Edward, just like Athelstan, made concessions and worked carefully to build a lasting peace with the Kingdom of Jorvik. And Edward's arrangement, just like Athelstan's arrangement, lasted only a year before it all came crashing down thanks to the King of Jorvik dying unexpectedly. Apparently, kings of Jorvik who made deals with the West Saxons just didn't live very long. And the reason for this isn't expressly stated, but it's pretty suspicious. And with that degree of apparent animosity towards the Anglo-Saxons, you might be wondering what happened to Citric's new wife. Athelstan's sister. Well, we aren't told. She's never mentioned again in the Chronicle or the Mercian Register. However, we do have a 12th century legend that was later repeated by Matthew of Paris and Roger of Wendover. And what that legend says is that after Citric's death, his wife, who the legend claims was named Edith, fled back to the Mercian capital of Tamworth. And there, at Polesworth, she founded a nunnery where she remained until she died. And while that story didn't surface in the written record for about 200 years, it should be noted that what it claims is completely in line with Mercian culture. Furthermore, local traditions contain some corroborating information, and the legend fits within the framework of what we know. So we can't say conclusively that Athelstan's sister was Edith of Polesworth, but it certainly is possible. And I find that interesting because she was soon venerated as a saint and that would fit within the culture of creating a dynastic cult. Her feast day, by the way, was July 15th, and it was celebrated for a while in the area, though it fell out of fashion, possibly due to some branding issues. Which, seriously, there's some branding issues related to saints here. 
You see, the Mercians at this point weren't on trend. And to make matters worse, Edith of Polesworth wasn't the only saintly Edith. Pretty soon after people in Tamworth were celebrating Edith's feast day, the West Saxons got their own Edith, Edith of Wilton. And before long, the feast for Edith of Polesworth vanished, likely due to it being eclipsed by the more famous Southern Edith, which is kind of a classic Wessex move. But regardless of what happened to his wife, or whether she really was Edith of Polesworth, with the death of King Citric, the whole balance of power on the island threatened to be upended because it left a power vacuum. And into that vacuum came Olaf Citrixen. And the story from here gets a little crazy. The various accounts tell an inconsistent story. We have bits and pieces of the story scattered across numerous records. And meanwhile, you also have things like version D of the Chronicle, which mostly ignores whatever was happening and instead decides to make a big deal out of some fiery lights that they saw over the north. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the story that William of Malmesbury gives us. And then I'm going to supplement that with other material coming from Florence of Worcester, the Annals, and elsewhere, and try and somehow craft that into a coherent story. And for those of you who are diehard Chronicle fans, you can just imagine the scribes dropping acid and watching Laser Floyd in the background. So, the big question here is, who the hell is Olaf Citrixen? Well, the thing to know about Citric is that he didn't enter his marriage with Edith as a virgin. He was a Vikinger. The dude played the field. And one of his previous unions produced a son who was now fully grown. And that was Olaf. And Olaf was a popular guy. And he had the support of the nobility of Jorvik. And considering that Citric and Ragnald both died shortly after being friendly with the Anglo-Saxons, my guess is that the support the nobility offered Olaf was contingent on the fact that he wouldn't bow to the House of Wessex. But... Whatever happened in the negotiations, in the end, Olaf was declared King of Jorvik. But the thing about Jorvik is that even though they changed their name, they still suffered from a lot of the same problems as the old kingdom of Northumbria. And one problem in particular was how fragmented it was. The Northumbrian nobles have, for generations, made it their life's mission to never pull in the same direction. And that has resulted in all manner of people making claims for the throne. Because it seems that you can always find a dynasty or two who will back you up, if for no other reason than to annoy their neighbors. And there was another person who had a claim to the throne. Do you remember the guy who took over the kingdom of Dublin when Citric left? Citric's cousin, Guthrith? Well, he not only had a blood claim to the throne, he was also a powerful king of Dublin. Some scribes even claimed that Guthrith wasn't Citric's cousin, he was actually his brother, which strengthened his blood claim. Furthermore, the dude had a huge Vikinger army out of Dublin. The point being, that King Guthrith of Dublin had a pretty strong claim here. So the Irish annals tell us that shortly after Citric died, Guthrith handed the rule of Dublin off to his sons, and then he gathered up his troops and sailed across the Irish Sea for the express purpose of claiming the kingdom of Jorvik. Now, some scholars claim that Guthrith went to support Olaf, but that's not what the annals say. They don't say that he was going to help out the newly crowned King Olaf of Jorvik. The annals say that he was going to claim Jorvik. And that was a problem for King Olaf. And it wasn't his only problem. To the south, 
there was another claimant, King Athelstan. Now, Northumbria had been subject to his father, Edward, and just over a year earlier, that relationship was reestablished when Citric recognized Athelstan as his overlord. Furthermore, Citric was now family, having married Athelstan's only full-blooded sister, making him Athelstan's brother-in-law. And beyond that, Northumbria, or Jorvik as they were now calling it, was an ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom, and Athelstan was the king of the Anglo-Saxons. William of Malmesbury states Athelstan's position this way, The kingdom, quote, belonged to him, both by ancient right and recent affinity, end quote. Northumbria was his. They just didn't realize it yet. Needless to say, all of this was a problem for the guy that the people of Jorvik declared king, King Olaf. But it looks like he was pretty clever, because Florence of Worcester tells us that shortly after claiming the throne of Jorvik, King Olaf sought to form an alliance with his northern neighbor, King Constantine of Scotland. And the times being what they were, that meant that Olaf sought a political marriage. And it was granted. King Olaf married the daughter of King Constantine of Scotland. And that meant that not only did Olaf have a new powerful ally, but it also meant that pretty much all of the land north of the Humber was united, and none of it was subject to Athelstan. That's bad news for the king of the Anglo-Saxons. And honestly, it wasn't even the worst of it. I'd say the most unsettling part of all of this was probably the speed at which Olaf moved and the way he went about securing his reign, because it was remarkably similar to something that Athelstan would have done. Game recognizes game. And so Athelstan must have known he had little time to waste. So he called the Ferd and marched. And we aren't sure exactly what happened next. We don't know if there were any battles, and if there were, where they took place. We know very little. All we're told is that King Olaf of Jorvik soon fled into Ireland, and Guthrith escaped with his forces into Scotland. Now, considering the size and scale of Athelstan's kingdom, it's entirely possible that Olaf and Guthrith realized that they lacked the ability to counter what was bearing down upon them, and that they fled before a single battle took place. But it's also possible that there was some fighting that simply didn't make it into the record. In support of that, we have a Latin poem about this event that was written by a member of Athelstan's retinue, a man named Petrus. And in this poem, he describes how, after the death of Citric, Athelstan readied his army for battle all throughout England. And that sounds pretty militaristic to me, but it's something we may never know for sure. But whatever happened, Olaf and Guthrith had escaped with their lives. But this wasn't really a win for them. Athelstan suddenly had the momentum. He also had a large army that was all dressed up with nothing to do. So Athelstan sent messengers north to the courts of King Constantine of Scotland and King Eugenius of Cumbria. And the messengers informed the kings that Guthrith was a fugitive and that if he was not surrendered to King Athelstan, then they should consider themselves at war with the Anglo-Saxons. For Eugenius and Constantine, it was an easy call. The South had grown into nothing less than a medieval machine of war. And now it was sitting on their doorstep. There's no way they're going to die for this one Vikinger. So with decor, the kings met, and they handed over the hapless Guthrith. 
But Athelstan wasn't content to stop there. He pressed his advantage, and he demanded that Scotland and Cumbria surrender to his authority. And Athelstan's army must have been as impressive as he was bold, because the kings agreed. But the king of the Anglo-Saxons knew that oaths could be broken, and so he sought to bind the deal by combining his family with Constantine's. Now awkwardly, Constantine had already married his daughter to Olaf, but he still had a son, and that son was unbaptized. So on the heels of their treaty, King Athelstan stood as godfather to the son of King Constantine. Bound by religion, they were now family, and Athelstan was clearly at the head of that family. And sitting at Decor, after reigning for less than two years as king, Athelstan had obtained authority over Scotland and Cumbria. He must have been feeling pretty good about that. All the way until a messenger came rushing in to inform him that at some point during the festivities, Guthrith had escaped. And that now he was traveling along with an allied noble named Turfred, and likely a significant number of supporters. And they were headed to the capital city of Jorvik. If King Guthrith took Jorvik, all the threats, all the treaties, all of it would be for nothing. All Athelstan would have to show for his efforts was a new godson. So the great army of the Anglo-Saxons rushed south. But large armies take a bit to mobilize, and Guthrith had a head start. So long before the Anglo-Saxons could reach them, Guthrith, Turfrid, and their army reached the walls of Jorvik. But there's a problem. The people of Jorvik weren't interested in whatever Guthrith was selling. He tried flattery and they turned him away. He tried bribery and the gates remained shut. He tried to threaten them and apparently the people of Jorvik remained unimpressed. The gates of the northern capital city remained barred no matter what he did. But Guthrith didn't stand alone. He had men with him. And if the people of Jorvik wouldn't let him in, then they would lay siege to it and force the issue. But the trouble with sieges is that they tend to take time. And he didn't have a lot of that, because he didn't just have enemies within the walls of Jorvik. He also had enemies outside that were rushing towards him. Because Athelstan was coming. And if he met Guthrith in the middle of a siege, he would be able to close in on the Vikinger and crush him against the very fortifications of Jorvik that they were seeking to breach. Guthrith and his men had to get inside those walls before Athelstan got there. And nothing focuses the mind like life-or-death situations. We don't know how he did it. We don't know if it was through a feat of arms, diplomacy, or deceit. But somehow, shortly before Athelstan and his army arrived, Guthrith and Turfred took possession of a castle, and they barred the gates behind them. Now exactly where this castle was and how they obtained it is unclear. But most likely, it seems that they found a way to sneak inside Jorvik and take the inner keep while no one was looking. And there, behind their walls, Guthrith and his supporters were safe. But how long they would remain safe was an open question. And as Athelstan and his army was sighted on the horizon, it was clear that Guthrith and Turfred couldn't hold out against what was coming. But that didn't mean that they were out of options. Before Guthrith became king, he'd made his name as a Vikinger. He knew what to do. 
So, as the king of the Anglo-Saxons ordered his army to set up guards around their holdout, Guthrith and his rebels watched. And they waited. And when the time was right, they made their escape. We aren't told how they pulled it off, but they completely eluded the watchful eyes of their enemies that surrounded them. But if they looked behind them as they fled, they probably would have seen the fires of Athelstan's vengeance burning behind them. We're told that, quote, Athelstan leveled with the ground the castle which the Danes had formerly fortified in York, that there might be no place for disloyalty to shelter in, end quote. Athelstan was making an object lesson of Jorvik. He was king. This was his land, and rebels would find no shelter here. There would be no more walls. Jorvik was his. And Jorvik was not just the capital city of the kingdom that he sought to claim. It was also more than just an economic powerhouse, though it was certainly an economic powerhouse. Jorvik was also a symbol. It had been the stage of the rise and fall of multiple kings and kingdoms, going all the way back to when Constantine was crowned emperor there, back when the town was called Aboricum. And when the great heathen army sought to conquer Northumbria, they went to Jorvik. Back then, it was called Ephewich. Taking and holding Jorvik was the key to cementing Athelstan's claim on the northern kingdom. And by destroying its fortifications, he was preventing the power of the city to be used to aid any potential future rebellions against him. And as the army tore down the fortress at Jorvik, they discovered a surprise. A vast treasure trove. Jorvik was, after all, a wealthy city. And that wealth was now Athelstan's. And so the king took his windfall, these spoils from a successful war against the Danish-held kingdom in the north, and he divided it equally throughout his army, man by man. The systemic destruction of the fortress at Jorvik had demonstrated the dangers of crossing Athelstan. But this sharing of riches provided a tangible example of the benefits of service. He was teaching these northerners what side to stand on, and his men loved him for it. This new king had only taken the throne two years earlier. He had come to power rumored to be a bastard. He was raised in a foreign sub-kingdom and shunned by his own royal father. But two years on the throne was all he needed to extend the borders of his kingdom far beyond anything his father, his grandfather, or any of his predecessors had accomplished. The man who would later be known as the Thunderbolt now reigned over a kingdom that had never existed before. Athelstan, sitting in Jorvik, surrounded by fiercely loyal supporters, wasn't a king of the West Saxons, as Alfred had been. Nor was he the king of the Anglo-Saxons, as his father had been. Here, with his dominion stretching all the way to the borders of Scotland, Athelstan earned a new title. He was Anglorum Rex the first king of England. <laughs>